Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast. This is 1117-1117-B. The Bs are always guests. The A's, the latest medical news, and what it means to you. Today we have actually an exciting, what I would call an exciting um, guest, because the book he has written, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, is what he's lived. And he's really been at the forefront of that. James A. Garrity and to get to the um, website and learn more about it, it's orphandrugrevolution.com. We, of course, as usual, are sponsored by Life's First Naturals. Life's First Naturals, the makers of both True Biotics and Bovine Colostrum. You can go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, to see their randomized studies showing the benefits, for example, of bovine colostrum in preventing um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug NSAIDs, ibuprofen, Advil, even aspirin's effect on the gut and GI tract. That's lifesfirstnaturals.com. But let's get to our interview with James Garrity, G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. The book is available on Amazon, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution. Um, Jim, can I call you Jim, or how do you want to be called? Please, if I can call you Mike, you can call me Jim. You can certainly call me Mike. Um, And one of the things that um, people may not understand is what is an orphan drug, and what's the difference between an orphan drug and a regular drug? And that's a great place to start, Mike, and it's a, an obvious question. And so the answer is simple. The first answer is an orphan drug is a drug that treats an orphan disease. So then the question is, what's an orphan disease? And an orphan disease is basically a rare disease. You know, in common language, it's a disease that, uh, that doesn't, is not as common as the prevalent diseases that strike millions of Americans. It's actually defined by a law called the Orphan Drug Act, as a disease that afflicts fewer than one in 200,000 people in America. That's about one in every 2,000 people. So that's kind of the definition of a rare disease. And um, now has that changed since the original? And and I should say you give uh, Henry Waxman um, credit in here and a lot of other people in developing this um, because these... Um, drugs or these diseases wouldn't have drugs developed for them except for this special act. So tell us, what does the act do um, that, uh, if you will, codified the orphan drug process? Well, the act was very important, and uh, it was passed just about exactly 40 years ago today, and as you say, uh, Congressman Henry Waxman deserves a lot of credit for it, one of the great healthcare leaders in Congress in the 20th century, uh, but also patients deserve a lot of credit for it. The Orphan Drug Revolution and the passage of the Orphan Drug Act was really spearheaded by patients and by, you know, led by one woman, a, uh, the mother of a patient named Abby Myers, and the story of Abby is told that uh, that's really how the book opens, 
And the, the story, you know, you can tell Abby's story and the story of, of, of millions of other people is that, you know, a child with a rare disease, the pharmaceutical industry in those years in the 1970s, you know, had kind of lost sight of its mission in many ways of treating these very rare, severe diseases and had gotten focused on, you know, blockbusters and had gotten very kind of risk averse and was looking always at kind of very safe me too versions of existing drugs. And in that pursuit, patients with these very severe, individually rare, but collectively very common genetic diseases were completely ignored. And so the Orphan Drug Act did what to enable that? Um, so in other words, the uh, I will tell you that uh, um, 200,000 is, you have to do a calculation of that when you submit a IND with an orphan drug potential, but why is this such a valuable thing for the uh, pharmaceutical or biotechnology companies? It was valuable in, in several respects. Probably at the highest level, it, it created awareness. You know, it brought attention to this need. It's a little bit like, you know, I use the analogy sometimes of, of the breast cancer. When Betty Ford started talking about breast cancer, and all of a sudden something that had been, you know, swept under the rug and ignored got into the public limelight. And that happened with the Orphan Drug Act. It brought people's attention to it, to the unmet need, to the need to do something about these devastating diseases. More specifically, what it did is it provided certain incentives. It provided, it reduced the filing fees to file with the FDA for these very, very rare diseases. It provided enhanced consultation with the FDA to develop the approval processes for these very customized, very specific diseases that needed a lot of, a lot of individual attention with the agency. And it provided a period of market exclusivity uh, because for many of these drugs, the patent life after approval is very short. And there was not an incentive fundamentally for investors to invest in the very expensive, high-risk research and development needed to bring these drugs to market. And so that period of market exclusivity provided the economic incentive needed to spur investment. And let me give a specific example, since I did develop a initially an orphan drug that we lost our orphan drug designation when they decided it was, but I took it through 2B as an academic uh, endeavor. And one of the great things you have said is you get specialized help from the FDA, um, if you will, the staff of the FDA, to tell you how to go, how to apply, what to do, how to file the application, very different than you would get um, if you were a had a drug that had wider spread usage. Um, and so we lost our designation when they said, well, there are really more than 200,000 people who a year who could benefit from this. Um, so that 200,000 is a, a key number. Um, and you both get the incentives of faster approval, as I understand it, um, as uh, faster, if you will, reporting back to you what's wrong, what's missing, what you should do differently, as well as advice from them in, in how to take it through their processes. Now, I wasn't a biotechnology company. We were an academic, um, so unusual in that regard. Um, so in the, in the biotechnology process, one of the things that you go into in detail is why it costs so much 
and what can we do about that? Uh, you you touch on that, um, but one of the things that has happened with the rare diseases um, is that it seems like there is a huge price tag on some of these drugs. Um, is that going to be consistent? Is there any way of lowering that, do you think? Well, the drugs are expensive, Mike. That's a fact, and I do discuss that, as you say, at length in the book, because it's an important fact. But, but the fact is, actually, these are exactly the kinds of drugs that society wants you know, the biotech and pharma industries to develop, right? Because what it's important for your listeners to understand, as you know, is, you know, these genetic diseases can strike any family, right? They don't, they don't just run in families. They can occur at any birth of any child or grandchild, niece or nephew. And they're devastating, as you know, often, you know, fatal in infancy, often result in a lifetime of chronic, severe debilitation, patients being wheelchair bound, you know, blind, uh, needing to through a ventilator, and the costs of care associated with that with patients who are in and out of hospitals, chronically in emergency rooms, the 24-hour care are astronomical. And actually, the cost of the drugs, you know, is not so high in that context. But what matters to patients, and what it's so important for people to understand here is no patient pays the list price of these drugs. That's why we have insurance. Right, 93% plus of Americans, as you know today, are covered by insurance, and all insurance policies are required to cover all FDA-approved drugs. So what matters to patients is, what are the out-of-pocket costs associated with their insurance policies? And it's the fact that the co-pays and the deductibles keep going up that really makes, these, makes it difficult for patients to access the drugs, and that's the thing we need to stay focused on in terms of insuring access. Well, but there's a cost to society as well. Um, that is, in other words, and, and I guess the, the great example would be a non-orphan drug, which was the recent drug that of biogens on Alzheimer's disease that was going to raise, that, in fact, they predicted, based on the prediction of use of the drug, and raised the fee for all Medicare patients in their uh, copay of insurance by a uh, not a small amount uh, last year. It turned out that Medicare didn't approve it, but they didn't um, approve its use except for in trials. But those, the, even when it's paid for by insurance, there is a cost to society. Um, so. It's, is there a way of bringing down the cost? In other words, is there a way of doing this? Um, I understand that, that, that both helps the investor recoup and uh, gain um, a desire to invest in it, but also for society. Absolutely. The cost has to be sustainable and affordable for society, just as you say. And the key to that, which as you know, Mike, is, the, is looking at the cycle and looking at the long-term you know, path of drug development. And as you know, today, more than 90% of all prescriptions written in America are for generic drugs. And generic drugs, as you know, when a, when a, when a drug goes off patent and is replaced by a generic, the price drops often by as much as 90%. So there are a few years of exclusivity when the prices are higher, but when the drugs go generic, the prices come way down. 
And the fact is, the largest selling drugs in America today, the system, our healthcare system, our insurance system, pays over $20 billion a year for certain individual drugs. So when they go off patent, the savings from that one drug going off patent are many, many billions of dollars a year. And that, that savings is more than the total that's paid to reimburse all the offered drugs that have ever been approved. Because, the, because when, no matter how high the price tag is, when there are so few patients, the total cost to society doesn't come close to the cost of the drugs that are actually prescribed for millions of people like Alzheimer's disease, which would be a very expensive market because there are so many patients, that's going to cost an order of magnitude more, literally, than any combination of orphan drugs could ever cost. And um, we're now undergoing a, as you point out in the book, a gene editing revolution in the orphan drugs, where we'll be able to knock out or alter the hope is obviously alter certain uh, drugs, um, certain genes, which will lead to, um, if you will, the gene editing will be a drug combination. Um, how will that change this whole field, do you think? Well, that's been the hope. That's been, as they say, the holy grail of uh, you know medicine for, for many years. And it is getting closer. There's no question we are learning a lot about gene editing and gene therapy, uh, and the great promise that those therapies offer, of course, that those technologies offer, is that it gives the promise of a one-time treatment that provides a lifetime of benefit, right? There have been a lot of great you know, orphan drugs introduced over the last 20 years, but, but essentially all of them, wonderful as they are and beneficial as they are, they require a lifetime of administration. So patients have to go into the hospital every couple of weeks, every month for usually a couple of hours to get an intravenous infusion of their drug uh, for lifetime. And the promise of gene therapy is that by correcting, as you say, the gene, uh, you can actually do that once and the patients have a lifetime of benefit. And the, the value of that to the patient, to the family, and to the healthcare system, as you can imagine, is enormous. And with that, is there the chance that we will see a sizable reduction in cost. In other words, as this gets more predictable, that is, you find an abnormal gene, you know how to edit it out, it becomes more predictable in doing that. Do you think that will lower the cost, or are we likely to still see um, fairly sizable costs for the gene editing? It's still going to be costly, but the key really to that bringing the cost down is continuing to work with the regulators to develop a set of approval uh, processes and standards that are appropriate to these very rare diseases and these one-time therapies. That doesn't mean lowering standards. Nobody wants to lower standards. They have to be absolutely proven to be safe and efficacious, but there are different ways to assess that, and the agencies are still continuing to apply certain standards that were appropriate for much larger diseases and for much more established uh, production technologies like you know small chemical molecules. But today, when we have these gene therapies, which are very complex biological molecules, the, the agency has been requiring certain kinds of testing of manufacturing and process validation and release specifications that have set some of these drugs back years that have actually caused 
some companies to abandon development of very promising drugs because the regulatory burden is so long and so great, and investors today are not investing in gene therapy because they're concerned that the regulatory barriers are too high and they won't be able to get a return on investment. So making those manageable is the key to making the drugs both available and affordable. So one of the takeaways I took from your um, excellent, and, and it's kind of a history of orphan drugs, as well as it has the emotional stories of families in it, um, but it's really a history of the orphan drug uh, revolution, as you put it, inside the orphan drug revolution. And we should say that you are a real, um, if you will, have been involved in this and are part of the uh revolution that has brought these drugs uh, to families and to people with rare diseases, um, that one of the things I took away from the book, and, and it may be that last point, is that there is, it's been 50 years since the orphan drug, uh, or 40 years, I guess, since the orphan drug uh, act got passed. And we need some changes in the regulatory framework, maybe that go to other, uh, to the basics of gene editing. Because, in other words, gene editing for rare disease is one th and a rare fatal disease. You probably want less. Um, how do I say it? There's a there's a bigger risk in the person having an adverse outcome, so you're willing to take more risk in giving it than, for example, treating a chronic disease that we already have treatment for, say a P a PCSK9 inhibitor, and where you say we've already got drugs that we can use for this. Um, gene editing for that has to be much safer, and it needs a different regulatory framework. So what I took from this, and, and um, what I want you to say, uh, Mr. Garrity, is whether that was the correct summary I took from it, is that we really need a revision of both the orphan drug and regulatory framework in general because of genetic editing. I think that's that's exactly right, Mike. And as you know, you know, sadly, uh, most of these genetic diseases, severe genetic diseases, strike at you know either birth or early childhood or infancy, and they are relentlessly progressive. And the longer we wait to get drugs approved, you know, children progress beyond the point where they can be brought back to full health, and that's a tragedy. And I've I've seen that happen, and that's exactly the kind of thing we want to avoid. And I and I will say, Mike, you mentioned that I you know I've been in this field for 40 years, and it it's been a privilege. And one thing that I think your listeners should know is I say in the book that I stumbled into the orphan drug revolution. I'm not a scientist, but I was drawn when I got to know some of the people who were working in the field early in my career. I was totally inspired by the scientists and the physicians and the entrepreneurs and the patients and the families and the work they do and the passion that they bring to this. It's truly inspiring. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to help people who have not been in the community understand that story and, and, you know, and, and feel some of that same passion and appreciate what some of these amazing leaders have done and understand how important it is that we continue to stand up to support the things that are necessary for this innovation to continue. I want to thank you, uh, James Garrity, for coming on. Um, this has been Dr. Mike Roizen, and you've been listening 
to James Garrity, talk about his book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology. Um, the website is orphandrugrevolution.com. It's a incredibly wonderful way that uh, Mr. Garrity weaves the patient stories and the development of drugs, and he really is a insider, I think serving now on uh, seven or eight boards of biotechnology companies that help develop orphan drugs. Our sponsor, as usual, has been Lice First Naturals. LiceFirstNaturals.com are the makers of uh, bovine colostrum and true biotics. Um, go to their website, LiceFirstNaturals.com, and you can see the scientific evidence supporting the work and their um, over-the-counter supplements. This has been Dr. Mike Roizen. This is 1117B. The B's of You, the Owner's Manual, are always wonderful guests like Mr. Garrity. And the A's, the latest medical news of the week, and my take on what it means to you and what you should do. Thanks again for listening. Caitlin, thank you for engineering. But especially thanks to our listeners for downloading us. Do tell your friends about us. Mr. Garrity, thank you very much for um, being both inside the revolution and helping forward it. And hopefully the book will bring about a change or help bring about a change in the regulations so that we can get more of what we need in orphan drugs. Thanks again. We'll be back next week.